Welcome to Raising the Bar, the one and only podcast that centers the lives and experiences of women of color while discussing legal issues and policies. We aim to inform, educate, and provide concrete tools to empower, expand, and raise the bar for our communities and ourselves. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the podcast. I know it's been a while. Um, I know that I missed um, the last RTB Tuesday, but I think it was election day and I just had a lot going on. And then I was supposed to record late that evening, but of course I was up like everyone else watching the elections, the returns, and then (laughs) it was just life got away from me. But I am happy to say I'm recording today and I'm recording tomorrow and I'm not going to hold on to them. I'm going to drop them as soon um, as I finish them because both of them I think are timely. So today on Raising the Bar with Iman, we are actually going to talk about this current Supreme Court term. Um, And then the next episode, which I'll drop very quickly, uh, I'm going to bring back my line sister, Vanetta Green, and we're going to talk about the just our reactions to the midterms so that is sure (laughs) to be a very interesting episode so again welcome to raising the bar with iman um you can find us on just about everywhere you can find podcasts the website www.rtbpodcast.com um so yeah, before we get into it, let's start ourselves. Let's start on a, a good positive note. I found this great, um, I don't know, it's like a statement um, that I found on Instagram and it's by Jackson Kiddard. And it says, anything that annoys you is teaching you patience. Anything who, I'm sorry, anyone who abandons you is teaching you how to stand up on your own two feet. Anything that angers you is teaching you forgiveness and compassion. Anything that has power over you is teaching you how to take your power back. Anything you hate is teaching you unconditional love. Anything you fear is teaching you courage to overcome your fear. Anything you can't control is teaching you how to let go. Again, this is by Jackson Kadard. And I did this because... I think often when we go through things, we tend to focus on like that immediate reaction or that immediate um, emotional reaction that we get. And I think what pushes us to grow and how we learn our greatest lesson is that any negative thing that we go through, there's always something positive to come out of it. And I'm going to say always. And so especially, you know, anything that angers you is teaching you forgiveness and passion. And I've learned that it makes no sense to like remain angry at people, especially when they've done the worst to you, the absolute worst, you know, to, you know, God is about forgiveness and compassion. And believe me, your life will be 100% better if you can try to take something positive out of all experiences, even the negative ones, and most importantly, the negative ones. Because as long as we continue, you know, and I know the saying, what is the saying? Um, Life is 90%, no, 10% what's done to you and 90% how you react. I totally probably butchered that, but y'all got what I said. Um, Yeah. So if you don't take anything away from today's positive 
statement or affirmation is definitely allow yourself a chance to feel, but always try to get something positive because there's always a lesson out of it. And I think that that is the number one secret to growth into a happy, joyous life. So yeah, up next, we're going to go, we're going to just talk about Supreme Court terms, some general characteristics of the term, and then talk about some of the cases. It was a lot of cases, so I only picked a few, um, a few that I thought would be most important to the to my audience. And we're going to end on, you know, of course, how to raise the bar when it comes to the courts, which, yeah, uh, is looking... And shout out to Justice Ruth Ginsburg, and I'm wishing you speedy recovery, like speedy. I think she fell in her office. So wishing her a very, very, very speedy recovery. So yeah, up next, the current Supreme Court term. All right, y'all. So on to this year, this Supreme Court. So we are currently at the very beginning of the 2018-2019 Supreme Court term. The term always starts the first Monday in October. So for 2018, it started December, I'm sorry, October 1st. And it usually goes to around late June or early July. And so I started this podcast, I think, like right around the time they were dropping all of their decisions. And so, again, you know, we usually get the law nerds, law students and attorneys usually get very excited around late June and July because that's when most of the decisions are dropped. Um, The term, it usually usually have about two weeks, which is considered a sitting and then two weeks of recess. So each month you'll have a sitting. We've already had October sitting. So we're going to talk about a lot of cases that were argued during the October sitting. And then you'll have um, after two weeks of the sitting, the two week sitting, then you'll have two weeks of resource in which, you know, the, the justices consider court business and write opinions. Um, Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh was sworn in on just October 6th, so a little bit into the start of the term. Um, initially, there were about 53 cases on the docket. They added about six more during the November sitting, and they, they may add, they will add more as the term goes along. So right now, I mean, with 53 cases, there's a hell of a lot to talk about, and there's no way in the world that I'll be able to talk about all of them. I'm only focusing on about six of them right now. But one of them that I wanted to talk about, there are actually two that deal with execution. And one of them that I wanted to talk about is Madison v. Alabama. Um, in Madison v. Alabama, the court will decide whether or not the Eighth Amendment prohibits a state from executing an inmate whose mental disability renders, renders him unable to remember the crime for which he is to be executed for. So let me say it again. Verdon Madison, and this is the um, the Madison of Madison v. Alabama, he no longer remembers the crime for which he is to be executed for. He is 67 years old. He suffers from dementia. He has seriously serious mental problems. Um, and all of this is following multiple strokes that he's had. He's legally blind, um, cannot walk without a walker, speaks with slurred speech. This case was actually argued during the October sitting and um, Equal Justice Initiatives, Brian Stevenson actually argued on behalf of Vernon Madison. Um, I think it's very important to talk about how we even got here. So Mr. Madison was convicted of a shooting death of an Alabama police officer in 85. His first trial was overturned 
after reviewing courts found that the prosecutor had engaged in intentional racial discrimination during jury selection. And this is very important because we're actually going to talk. There's another case um, in this term that was just picked up during the November sitting, Flowers View, Mississippi, which talks about jury discrimination. But um, so Mr. Madison's first trial was actually overturned because of alleged um, intentional racial discrimination when choosing the jury and they excluded the black black people. Um, He was tried a second time, convicted and sentenced to death. Uh, After his second trial, courts again found that prosecutors engaged in misconduct and illegally convicted him. They tried him a third time. He was convicted, but the jury sentenced him to life imprisonment without parole. Um, a judge then overturned that life sentence and sentenced him to death. Right. And after this, it's funny to say after this, the Alabama legislature barred judges from doing that, but they didn't retroactively apply the law. So his death sentence stood after, even after Alabama stopped doing that. Right. He was scheduled for execution in 2016, A federal appeals court found that he was incompetent to be executed because he had no rational understanding of the crime for which he was convicted. And the court held that, you know, um, a person suffering from dementia, um, executing a person suffering from dementia would be cruel and unusual punishment. The Supreme Court overturned that ruling in 2017 and said that Um, a federal court could not make that decision. And it was an unresolved question. And the court is actually taking up that question during this term. So like I said, a lot has happened in this case. Um, You know, I'm glad that EJI is Brian Stevenson. He has been, you know, just a very, um, a strong leader in this area of law. And I'm just very interested to see the outcome of this case. So the next case actually hasn't been argued yet, but this case will question the question for the court. And I'm sorry, it's Gamble v. United States. And the question of the court is to um, the case, the court will decide whether the whether to overrule the separate sovereigns exception to the double jeopardy clause. So you may or may not know, but there is the Fifth Amendment states, no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life and limb. You know, a lot of people refer to that as a double jeopardy clause. For the longest, the court has ruled that there is a separate sovereign's exception. And what that means is that two states may prosecute the same person um, for the same offense if if, if it, it happened in Two in both of those states, or the federal and the state courts may prosecute a person if both federal and state, you know, laws were violated. And so, for the longest, um, the court has ruled that there is a separate sovereign suggestion um, exception. And frankly, it's been used a lot. And so, this the court will decide whether or not to overrule this separate sovereign's exception. And so, of course, this will be very this will be far-reaching as most, you know, Supreme Court cases are. So I'm very excited to um, hear the outcome of that case. The next case is um, was actually argued during the October sitting, and it's Nielsen v. Preop. And this case deals with um, mandatory detention of non-citizens. And I think it's very important. Um, this case can definitely immediately impact 
um, a lot of non-citizens in the United States. And, and the law in question is actually the reason why many people, even after I'm talking about decades of committing a crime, they're being picked up by immigration officials due to this specific, um, statute that is in question here. So the relevant portion, um, in the IN, um, sorry, the INA, and the INA is the Immigration and Nationality Act. There's a portion that says that DHS, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, shall take into custody any person who is inadmissible or deportable um, on certain specified statutory grounds when the alien is, and I hate aliens, so when the person is released. And, and that right there is very important. So basically, the statute says, that when a person is released from criminal custody, that DHS may take them into custody, right? Um, and it's important to know that the issue is, what does it mean when the, the statute says when the person is released? Does it mean that the person could be released, 10 years goes by, immigration officials pick this person up, and just mandatorily detains them and doesn't give them any opportunity for bond whatsoever. Or does this mean that, or does this um, statute kick in and only kicks in when, you know, immediately after this person is, you know, released from criminal custody or does their time that DHS is, DHS is, DHS is able to transfer them into, you know, the immigration criminal scheme, right? Um, you know, and I think it's important to note that the, Pre-op inquiry, and those are the two uh, persons, and I believe this is a class action, I want to say, but the two individuals, pre-op inquiry, um, there are the two immigrants in this um, case. And, you know, they have been living in the community for years after they're released from detention. They don't pose the same flight risk as, say, you know, someone else who had just been released from criminal incarceration. They've built their lives back up. And the government is still saying that they have the option of detaining them, right? Because they did, they committed a crime 10 years ago because of this statute. And I think, you know, one important, um, I think one important argument that they have is that, you know, to interpret this statute to mean that the government can just pick up anyone else, regardless, pick up any immigrant who has been convicted of a certain crime, regardless of how much time has has um, has lapsed since they they've been released from criminal custody. The fact that the government is interpreting this statute to mean that that's just contrary to public policy. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that they, the government is drawing its reasoning from this BIA appeal. The Board of Immigration's appeal in 2001 in a case, Enri Rojas, construed the statute to require detention of anyone charged with the crime um, re removability under the grounds contained in Section 1226C, regardless of whether or not they were detained immediately upon release. And so the government is saying that we need to pay attention to this BIA um, ruling and we need to interpret or that the Supreme Court should interpret the crime, the, interpret the statute to mean that it doesn't matter when the person was released from criminal custody, that they could have, they could be released from criminal custody yesterday, or they could have been released from criminal custody 20 years ago, that the immigration officials still have the authority to pick them up 
and detain them indefinitely, by the way, and not provide them with a bond hearing and not assess whether or not they have appropriate ties to the community and not assess whether or not they're a flight risk, right? That they shouldn't have any of that due process be damned and that we should hold them indefinitely until we decide whether or not, until we decide if they should be deported. So yeah, I definitely, you know, we, this case will definitely, um, either give this current administration the, you know, the ability to lock people up indefinitely. People who have rebuilt their lives with their families, paid their debt to society, become productive um, members of society. And then this will, this case can possibly make them subject to mandatory imprisonment until they wait until, you know, their deportation case is concluded. And you know, that can take years. So definitely keep an eye out for, and I'll definitely, when this case is decided, I will definitely report on this case. So yeah, there are about three cases that deal with a federal statute. Um, and it is actually, um, an enhancement statute, um, which called the armed career criminal act. And this was also, argued during the October sitting. The ACCA, or ACCA, uh, was written in Congress in 1984, amended in 86, and imposes a mandatory minimum of 15-year prison sentence for any federal firearms offender who has three violent felon who has been convicted of three violent felonies. Now, I think that is important to note that because this is a federal statute, um, it still considers the state law that the person was convicted under. And so because state laws can vary, federal judges must apply a generic definition of the crime, right? And that's how they decide, you know, whether or not um, the crime triggers ACA enhancement, sentencing enhancement. So, um, I think, so Stokeland v. United States, United States v. Stitt, and U.S. v. Sims. These were all argued during the October 9th, October sitting, October 9th to be exact. And I, I do want to talk about Stokeling um, in particular. And the reason I want to talk about that is, so the question for the United States Supreme Court and Stokeland v. United States is whether or not they should use Florida's um, definition of whether or not the Florida robbery statute should trigger, um, the sentence and enhancement and, um, that ACA triggers. Right. And so the reason why, uh, Florida's robbery statute is in question is because in Florida state courts, um, it is only required in order for something to be robbery in Florida state courts, it's only required a slight force to overcome resistance, right? And the, the courts have to determine whether or not that's considered a violent felony under ACCA, right? Because if something that requires just slight force, that can be taking a purse, right? That could be stealing a chain. And is that considered a violent felony, especially a felony that will automatically trigger a 15-year sentence, Right. And so I think it's very important that we keep we keep an eye out on any case that can possibly broaden, right, um, the definition of a crime, right. And so we definitely I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye out on these three. The other one was U.S. v. Stitt, 
that talks about burglary um, under Arkansas and Tennessee law. And then USV Sims that talks about burglary too um, with a non-permanent and mobile structure. Um, up next, we're going to talk about, want to just um, up to point out USV Hammond and Mont V US. Those states, I'm sorry, these cases both talk about um, supervised release. And especially within Mont VUS, I think the question is whether or not a person's period of supervised release, whether or not that is stopped if a person is in a period of pretrial confinement. And what I mean by that is um, Mont was sentenced to seven years in prison, five years of supervised release. During his last year of supervised release, supervised release. He was arrested and sentenced to six years in prison. By the time he was sentenced for the new crime, his time of supervised release, his five years has expired. And so they tried to um, violate him on the five year for the supervised release. And, you know, he's arguing that the district court lacked jurisdiction um, to adjudicate the alleged um, violation. So I think that that's going to be a very interesting case. Um, the last case I wanted to talk about um, is Flowers v. Mississippi. Now, if you're watching or listen, not watching, listening to In the Dark, um, it's a podcast that covers the Curtis Flowers trial in Mississippi. This case, Flowers v. Mississippi, actually discusses this case. And this, you have got to listen to this podcast. It's called In the Dark. Um, it's very interesting and just to go briefly go over um, Flowers' case, but he was put on trial six times for the murder of four people, I want to say in a furniture store. And during his first four trials, the prosecutor, Doug Evans, was twice found that he violated the constitutional ban on racial discrimination in selecting jurors. And like I said, like we talked about in Madison v. Alabama. Um, and during his fifth trial, the jury was deadlocked. And on his sixth trial, Evans allowed the first black juror to be seated, but he struck the remaining five jurors. And you will never believe like the inconsistencies in the state's case and flowers, but I'm not going to focus on that. I'm just going to focus on the Supreme court and what the Supreme court will be talking about. So in flowers be Mississippi, the court will be discussing if the Supreme court when determining, um, that the prosecutor, Doug Evans violated the constitutional ban on racial discrimination, whether or not the, the Mississippi, Mississippi Supreme court aired in applying Batson v. Kentucky. Now Batson v. Kentucky is a landmark case, which talks about jury discrimination or discrimination when selecting jurors. And just to get into Batson really quickly, Batson v. Kentucky centered around James Kirkland Batson. He was on trial for burglary and receipt of stolen goods. Um, prosecutors have the ability to strike potential jurors using um, challenges for cause, and they have a limited number of challenges for cause, but they have to state a reason if they're striking someone for challenge for cause. And they have a limited number of peremptory challenges in which they don't need to state a reason. Now, in Batson's trial, he challenged the removal. He challenged the uh, removal of the four black juries from the jury pool, and he said it violated his Sixth Amendment to an impartial jury, and it also violated the Equal Protection Clause um, of the Fourteenth Amendment. 
Um, he was subsequently convicted on both counts. On appeal, the Supreme Court of Kentucky, Kentucky affirmed the convictions, and then the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. So in Batson v. Kentucky, in a 7-2 decision, the court held that while a defendant is not entitled to have a jury that's made up of, you know, all people composed of his, you know, composed of people from his race, that the state is not permitted to use its peremptory challenges. Remember, the peremptory challenges, the state doesn't need to um, state a reason. The state is not allowed to use those challenges to automatically exclude potential juries based on their race. And so in, in Batson v. Kentucky, the, the court said the Equal Protection Clause guarantees the defendant that the state will not exclude member of its, members of his race from the jury on account of race or based on the false assumption that members of his race as a group are not qualified to serve as jurors. And so the, the, the court kind of came up with um, a test. And what the what Batson says is a defendant in a criminal case can make an equal protection claim based on discriminatory discriminatory gracious discriminatory use of the peremptory challenges, right? And once the defendant makes a showing that race was the reason that the jurors were excluded, the burden shifts to the state to come forward with a race neutral explanation for the exclusion. So this is where it's been like very interesting since Batson kind of created this, um, you know, an avenue for defendants to challenge jury selection. Because frankly, uh, prosecutors across the country have come up with race neutral explanations for why they've, you know, excluded juries. Um, they've said um, because a jury has ch juror has children, where they live, employment history, body language. These are all the reasons um, why prosecutors um, have. These are all the reasons prosecutors have come up with to to exclude certain members, right? Because remember, it can't be based off of race anymore. Um, and I think a lot of people. Um, say that the best way to avoid discriminatory strikes is just to end the use of peremptory challenges altogether. Um, but a lot of people don't, you know, support that for many reasons. And so I, I you know, it's, it's unclear. No, I'm gonna say it's clear. I don't think Batson <laughs> has, um, totally done away with discrimination in jury selection. There was a big win um, in a case, Timothy Foster. Recently, the Supreme Court tossed out his conviction because um, after, I think his his team um, actually, um, a pub, they, they submitted a public records request for the prosecution's notes. And in the notes, you can see clearly they have like, they... Um, indicated all of the black jurors and sure enough all of those jurors were you know strike from the um struck from the jury pool so it's going to be extremely interesting um to to just see whether or not um to see the outcome of this case remember i think the you know the court has definitely chosen a very narrow issue to talk about so we'll see in flowers view mississippi but like i said if you haven't listened to in the dark please um listen to in the dark um about the cur the case against flowers v mississippi so those are all of the cases that we're going to focus on so far i'll definitely make sure that i continue to focus on you know cases as we go through the term i'll pick up more cases um to talk about i know that i definitely want to talk about um there is a case 
um, about Garza v. Idaho. Um, I know I want to talk about that and a couple of the cases I think about. Definitely Tim's v. Indiana. I definitely want to talk about that as well. Um, so yeah, up next, we will close us out and um, give you just a great sneak peek into the next episode, which will focus on the midterms, just my reaction and what the hell is still going on in Florida. I mean, in Georgia and Florida, although Florida, I think the recount is official now, but, um, and you know, Rick Scott is big mad, but, um, Georgia y'all still acting up. Like, and didn't we tell you in the last episode that we can see you? Like, we know we can see what's going on in Florida and Georgia. Like we can see you. <laughs> So how do we raise the bar, especially when it comes to judges? The reason why I named this episode what Kavanaugh is deciding is because I, I, I'm still, I think his temperament during his nomination hearings still sits with me, right? To see that anger, because the anger was a sense of entitlement to being treated what he, he deemed fair, right? So how dare you take these unfounded accusations and you mess up my future? I am entitled, right, to, you know, this, this equity. I'm entitled to this because I'm a white man, right? And, and he was, you know, extremely supported by other white men. As you can see, he was confirmed despite everything that, you know, we heard and I and I I can only look at that in light of what's going on with Curtis Flowers in Mississippi and the gentleman out of Alabama, right? Where you had two black men who were tried multiple times, right? Multiple allegations of um, discrimination and jury selection, multiple allegations of prosecutorial misconduct, and yet no one ever ever, you know, expected them to be treated fairly. And so, you know, I think, of course, Supreme Court justices in the highest court of the land, that's one thing. The way that we can definitely raise the bar, I think, is they're not not all judges or not all, yeah, not all judges are um, put on the bench the way that, that, you know, the judges of the Supreme Court are. Some judges are elected. They are elected by people like you, like me. And so whenever you do have a judicial election in your community, please make sure you, you research that judge's record. Please make sure you actually go. Most court proceedings are, are local, I mean, are public. Go and see how that person is on court. You know, this if, if this current uh, season of cereal didn't teach me anything, it teach me that judges will do and say any damn thing, that they often overreach their boundaries Right. And don't expect any type of um, any type of reprimand, frankly. And so the way that we can raise the bar is that we we have to start just like prosecutors are elected. Some judges are elected in some states. We have to pay attention to those races as well. So until next time, stay blessed, be blessed. And I will talk to you very soon because we are going to talk about the midterm elections. And while I don't think it was such, I don't think it was as bad as certain Democrats say, but I definitely don't think it was as good as the president said. Um, 
yeah, it's it's so much to unpack when you're talking about the midterms. Uh, so yeah, check us out www.rtbpodcast.com. Remember, we're on IG, Instagram, one RTB podcast, and we are on Facebook, one RTB podcast. Until next time.